All right, hello everyone and welcome to a very special edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. This is Jonathan Galt and there's no Robert Weldon. We've upgraded the guest. We've now got Ben Rosario. He is the coach of Alephine Tulliamuk, the 2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials champion. And it is Wednesday after the race. We're going to do sort of a post-mortem, get Ben's thoughts on the race, how he experienced everything in Atlanta. Ben, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing this afternoon? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I'm still in a bit of a fog from the whole day uh, on Saturday, but uh, it's a good fog. Yeah. How have you spent the last four days? Well, Saturday we definitely celebrated, so I didn't get a lot of sleep on Saturday. Um, Came back on Sunday, slept pretty well all the nights since, I guess, but uh, just never have woke up feeling refreshed yet. It's just a very draining experience. How did you guys celebrate? Um, well, we, it it was since the race started so late, it was different than the marathons we're used to. I mean, we had to kind of get, get going. I mean, all of a sudden it was five o'clock and we had to go to the awards and, um, that was really fun to have three people in the top eight. So everybody was up on stage and that was cool. And, uh, they had a couple beverages there for us. And so we imbibed and then, um, we went to, uh, Hoka sponsored event, in I guess it was Midtown Atlanta and had a good time there it just hung out you know it was just fun to it wasn't some kind of you know crazy frat boy uh, uh, party kind of thing it was just a really good time Uh, a lot of the Hoka employees were there and my friends were there from St. Louis and my brother was there and um, you know all the significant others were there and the athletes and we we had Rory Linkletter and Alice Wright from the team they were there and uh, it was just a very very cool uh way to celebrate yeah i mean i'm sure after the race you're here you're getting like a million texts and everyone's trying to call or congratulate you like was there any one interaction that really resonates with you there were a lot of texts a lot of them i didn't even see until monday or tuesday because it was just too many to get to get to all of them but it's just always cool to hear from people that you haven't heard from in a long time that you don't even realize they follow the team but they obviously do and um I don't know. I, I liked the one I got from Kevin Hansen because he's such a mentor to me and such a, I mean, I, you know, I don't even know if he realizes this, but he's just such a role model to me, uh, not only in his coaching, but just how he conducts himself and as a dad. And, you know, he sent me a, a, a note that said he was uh, proud of me. And that, that was really cool. Yeah. So I want to flash back to the start of Saturday morning. You know, can you just give me what your activity log basically before the race goes off when do you wake up what do you do from that point until 12.08 p.m well this one with the later start was nice we were able to do that shakeout run so hoka uh, sponsored a shakeout run right in front of the weston and oh my gosh it was insane so ben and i went over there and we expected a few people you know and there were hundreds hundreds of people and and i think peter bromka of of twitter fame uh, was uh, having a group run as well. So they came over and joined us and we, we took off and Ben, I mean, it was impossible to corral all these people. Ben told them, Ben Bruce said, Hey, let's go up to Peachtree and turn left. But everybody was just talking and having a good, having a good time. And they just went right, right through Peachtree. <laughs> and so they were going down. The, and so we we're trying to yell at people. And then they came around and eventually we found Peachtree 
And it was supposed to be just an easy 15 minute out and back, 30 minutes total. But people were way down the road. I don't know how far some people ran. So eventually I just turned around and came back. But um, anyway, that kind of killed my morning, which is nice because I would have just been sitting around nervous. And uh, I went back to the Airbnb I was staying at, took a shower, and then walked about a mile and a half to the hotel to meet with the athletes and then, you know, head over to the uh, start area. Yeah. So what time exactly do you, did you wake up? Do you remember? Oh, early probably 4 a.m i just couldn't 4 sleep. yeah i just really sleep. yeah so yeah what's the what's the overwhelming feeling is it is it nervousness is it excitement are you thinking this is going to be a good day are you worried what emotions are you feeling well it's weird because i think the best word to use is nervous but it's not it's not a worried nervous it's just an excited nervous um when i woke up i knew there was no way i was getting back to sleep so i took out my laptop and put my headphones on and watched I tried to watch something <laughs> that I thought would totally get my mind off it. So I watched it. I'm a big World War II buff. So I watched uh, a Hiroshima uh, <laughs> documentary on Netflix, which is very deep. Um, so that did help. That got my mind off it for a little bit. What was it called? I think it was just called Hiroshima. I don't know. It's on Netflix right now. But uh, it was really, really dark. Uh, but uh, did the trick, I guess. Yeah. And then where were you posted up for the race? So I walked everybody over to the start area and they went to their very or their respective tents, the men's and women's tents. And then I sat there uh, on the fence with Wes and AJ Gregg, who are our strength and conditioning coaches and chiropractors. And uh, we were there chatting and, and it's Ben Bruce and I, and then uh, Josh Cox and Larry Rosenblatt were there. Uh, they're the agents for most of our athletes and several of our athletes. And uh, we were just kind of chatting and all of a sudden we freaked out because the wind and we thought, oh, maybe the guys need something over their uh, nipples. <laughs> so we we're like, do we have any tape? Do we have any band-aids? And Wes had some some medical tape and we got it ready and we we uh, we cut six strips and uh, we, we, we saw the guys and we said, hey, come over, come over. Do you guys need anything for, for your nipples? And they're like, no, we're fine. <laughs> we're like, oh, okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Well, just in case, just in case. But uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. Wait, so does wind lead to increased nipple chafing? I wasn't aware of this. I, I think so because it's it, it's so um, you're, you're, there's so much motion and friction. You know, the singlet's bouncing around. Uh, that's what I thought anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did notice that your women, two of them were wearing pullovers and Kellen Taylor was wearing a windbreaker. Was that, I guess, did they just do that on their own? Is that something you guys are worrying about beforehand? That was definitely my suggestion because... Uh, Kellen, as we know from Boston, gets cold pretty easily. Uh, you know, she had to drop out of Boston in 2018 in that nasty weather year. And I just forever now, I take a different approach to how we dress for the marathon. I think, look, this is 26 miles long. You're not, you're not sprinting. You're not running 5k pace. So we basically want to dress like we would dress if it were a workout in the same conditions. And, and if it were a workout in the same conditions, we would have started with that stuff on for sure. So that was really just what we're used to. And I think it worked out really well. All right. So I want to talk about the women's race, obviously, but I think I'm going to start with the men because you did have three guys in there, including one of the pre-race favorites and Scott Farble. And I guess I'll start by saying, you know, what were your instructions to them? Like, when do you give them sort of the pre-race meeting and say, hey, here's our strategy, here's what we're going to do? And what was the content of that meeting? What'd you tell them? Well, we found that, I guess, 
different athletes like to do that meeting at different times. And for Scott and Scott, I mean, I'm still getting to know Sid, of course, but for Scott and Scott, I think they like to do it earlier than later and just kind of be done with it. And then they can just relax and enjoy the race weekend. So we did it on Tuesday of race week. Um, the content, and it was, I did it with Sid as well um, on Tuesday. And the content was just, you know, mostly being prepared for anything and just really getting, wrapping their mind around the fact that they were going to have to make a lot of decisions, uh, possibly even very early. And that did turn out to be the case, of course. And what else did we talk about? Um, just reminding them that the course was, was very difficult and that should factor into their decision. We don't need to sugarcoat it or act like it's not hard. It is hard. Um, what else? Um, you know, just reminding them that we were prepared for the course for sure. And, and it was pretty, pretty simple, you know, pretty simple meeting. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, Scott Fobble, Scott Smith and Sid Vaughn. I'll just remind our readers of the three men that you were coaching. Uh, and what about the running the race? Do you just is it just good luck? Like, do you give them any pre race instructions like that, or is that anything pretty, special? From pretty that? much just good luck. That's the idea of getting the race talk over with, so that you're confident and you don't need any uh, last minute instructions. Uh, just gave them each a hug and sent them on their way. Uh, tried to remind Fobbs. I, I guess I whispered in his ear that you know he's going to own those last four miles, which is usually the case. Um, so that was the last thing I said to him. Yeah, and the men's race. You know, there's an early breakaway, uh, Luke Piscedra, and he kind of comes back, and then there's another breakaway with Brian Schrader and Dan Nestor at about five miles. What do you do? You guys, do, what do you tell you guys about breakaways? Like, is it a matter of who's making the move? Is it a matter of who, how hard the move is? Like, is it ever, is it ever a good idea to go with guys like that? We wanted to be where the critical mass was. That's the words I usually, or the phrase I usually use, and so what they did in letting Brian go was what we always talk about. You know, we don't want to be in that group. We want to be where the critical mass is. Uh, it's always easier physically to be, to be in that, in that pack. Um, we, I did have a little talk with Scott Fauble the day before he just, you know, just after the tech meeting was, or just before the tech meeting, I guess was getting just a little nervous and asked about, well, what if the, um, ADP guys make a really hard push early and Galen goes, what do I do then? And I said, look, you know, I just don't think people are going to run under 210 on this course. Um, and I, I love you, but I don't think you are going to either. So you have to be prudent in that situation and make what is uh, really actually a brave decision and, and not go with something like that. Now, obviously, I was wrong. And, you know, obviously, I misjudged what people could do on that course. And I feel bad about that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, to answer your question, we, we want to be, we want to be where the, uh, the mass is. And, and in this case we did, we did mention even in our meetings, you know, using Jared as a person who you could really trust. And, and Jared did make really good decisions. I think, um, in the race, obviously it didn't pan out in the end for him, but I think all the decisions he made through 18, 20 miles were really smart. And, and Jake Riley came from that pack. I mean, the, the race that Jake ran, it, it, was beautiful. It was, uh, it was just wonderfully executed and he made all the decisions that we, we had kind of talked about making. And actually Scott Falwell and Scott Smith both made great decisions as well. They just got beat. Yeah. I think that's, that was my reflection watching the race is like Jake Riley kind of ran the race that I think Fable and Ward maybe were hoping to run. And 
I don't know. It's just like you got to be really good and you got to have it on the day. And that course, I think, took a lot out of people. And Riley was able to do it. Absolutely. Else wasn't. That's my that's my take as well. Yeah. Um, so Galen Rupp, he makes his move. He's the obviously the alpha dog in the field, and he sort of gets to the front at 16 miles. And your guys aren't up there. Are you panicking at that point, or what are you thinking? I wasn't panicked at that point. The only the only time I really kind of you know, sort of had that feeling like, uh-oh, you know, it's not going to be great, is when I saw that pack with Jared Ward and Jake Riley and whoever else was in that group at that time come by looking good, looking like, okay, this is still a pack that can do it. Marty Heher was in that pack, uh, and Fobbs was off the back of it. And I was like, ah, that's not good because that's not like him. This isn't a calculated decision. This is He's not on this, you know, and um, and that was that was the first time that I thought, okay, maybe it's not going to be our day on the on the men's side. Scott Smith was already a little bit back of that as well, and so I think I'd already had that realization with him or for his race, but uh, but Scott Fauble, I still felt very confident in until I saw him just a few meters off of that pack. What point of the race was that? I guess I'm talking about 17. Yeah, at, at 17, he was just off, and he actually still ran very very well through 23. Um, it's just he let that pack get away a little bit. And if you look at his splits, they were still very good, but it's just so hard to be off of that pack. He really needed to be in that pack. How are you following this race? Because I, I rewatched the TV broadcast last night, and a lot of it is focused in if they're not in the front pack or maybe the right, you know, that chase pack leading it, they, they didn't show much of that chase pack that Riley and Ward and Fobbs were in and that sort of thing. Are you scrolling through on your phone? Do you have people on the course telling you? Are you just going off what you can see with your eyes when they pass you? How do you follow a race like this? I suppose it was all of the above. So we had a, a bar, restaurant, Max Loggers that we were at at the one mile mark, which is also nine and 17. So I would watch them come by. Then I would go back into the bar, watch on TV, uh, go back out, etc. But a lot of it was in terms of the real data was on the phone. The app was amazing. So you could see every single mile. And if you had your people already um, uh, put into the tracking, you could see their exact mile. So even if – because the pack was so huge, sometimes your person wasn't even in the top 25 on the leaderboard, even if they were still in the pack. Um, So you know, I would just look at the splits. Uh, I I felt like I was really – I was really on top of everything that was going on the whole time. Yeah. I mean – and halfway, I mean, we were looking at – I remember when I saw the halfway split and I saw, I think it was 45 guys at 65, 41 or faster than that. I mean, are you just thinking like I've totally underestimated the course? You think all these guys are going to blow up? What's going through your mind when you see that split? I don't know that I was processing it in that way at that time. I mean, you're just in it at that point. You're just, Mm -hmm. you're just going, you know, but, um, but I mean, I suppose in retrospect, yeah, obviously I'm very surprised that it went that fast. Uh, I think though, I will say that once the rhythm, once you could tell, it didn't take me long. It it was well before halfway that I realized this thing is going to be very fast because they weren't going to put on the brakes. There was just too many guys, you know, it was just rolling. And so it, it, it became very clear very early that this thing's rolling. Yeah. So you said at the time when Weldon spoke to you after the race, you know, you you couldn't make sense of the men's results, just how everyone ran that fast on that day. You said it was the toughest marathon course you've ever seen, and yet you've got five guys under 211. You've got 12 guys under 213. Have you been able to make sense and process those results at this point? 
Well, I think part of it certainly is something I've said before. I, I said it about the Chicago race when all the U.S. men ran, ran fast. If you get a lot of people together rolling, I mean, that's how to do it, you know. And so like your point about 45 guys coming through in 105 something, if you, I mean, that's how the Japanese have done it for a number of years. Now, they're not all going to run 210, but some of them are. And, and so in that sense, it's not terribly surprising just because you had so many guys so fit and so ready and ro- willing to push and roll the whole way. So I guess that's part of my uh, assessment. But then, um, you know, I, again, I, I, you know, I'm not making any excuses. I, I look at Jake Riley and I say, okay, you know, it was possible. I mean, that that's a guy who I have a ton of respect for and a ton of respect for Lee Troop, his coach, and they got it done, you know, and, and we didn't. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, I feel like I bring this up every interview with you, but I got to bring it up is the shoes because you look at Scott Fobble's results. He was 212.39 and that's like, that's a pretty good run on that course. You know, I think a lot of people, you said you included, if you'd said you beat Jared Ward and you run 212.39, well, you're probably on the team. And that was only good for 12th. And I think of the top 10, nine of them were in the Alpha Fly or the Vapor Fly. And talking to Robert Johnson, my boss, really, that's kind of our theory is for how these results make sense is like these, these shoes just had an advantage. And I guess, you know, obviously you guys, you have a relationship with a shoe company, but I guess I'm curious, like, does that fly for you as an explanation? Like, do you think that factors into it at all that nine of the top 10 were all wearing the same kind of shoe? Obviously the shoes are working. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I mean, obviously that technology is, is far and away the best technology that's ever been um, produced for for the road racing world. Um, but I would say, you know, we have very similar technology. So I'm not saying it's superior to ours, but I'm just saying the technology, the carbon fiber plates, the the new foams that are being used, the new stack heights that are being used are obviously uh, producing amazing results. And um, yeah, I, I think the shoes are a part of the story. Of course, that, that'd be silly for me to not to, to not say that. Yeah. And I know that you, you know, when we spoke before the race, you said you were very confident in all your guys and, and, and women wearing the Rocket X. And obviously, I mean, what for Alephine, she won the, on the women's side, you guys had a great day. I guess, where does that confidence come from? Is it just like that they run in them and they feel good? Like, do you guys have testing that's showing you that it stacks up comparably to the Vaporfly or better than what your previous shoes have been like? Or is it all just going off feel? Well, I'm always saying that our, you know, we're, we're, We've never been super scientific. We're a little bit more old school if, if it's a spectrum, right? And, uh, you know, our, we've always said that our lab is Lake Mary Road. And they've been crushing out on Lake Mary Road running faster than they ever have before wearing these shoes. So uh, I think they're these shoes are performing better than the shoes we had in the past. And we performed pretty well in those shoes. So for us, it's we, we've also taken a huge step forward. Um, that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Anything else, any other lingering thoughts about the men's race or anything that we didn't talk about you think is sort of important? No, I think I think it's uh, important, and you, you mentioned it, uh, you know, there's nothing to hang your head about for fall. I mean, 212, 
the splits he was running, he ran great. And Scott Smith as well. I mean, he f- fell off a little bit more than Fobbs did, which is, you know, obviously not something you want to see, but, but he was still passing people coming home. He never gave in an inch. Neither of them did. They, they ran with uh, an incredible amount of heart and, uh, and, and never felt sorry for themselves, never threw a pity party. And that's really, um, that's really what we're all about. Mm-hmm. So let, let's move on to the women again. When did you meet with them before the race to sort of map out strategy, tactics, that sort of stuff. And what was said in those meetings? Yeah, so Kellen, I talked to on that Tuesday. Uh, we were in Orlando with her and with the three guys, and her her talk was um, uh, not entirely different than the guys, but a little different because the guys' race had a lot more unpredictability. So I really was harping on how many, just getting them ready for the fact that they were going to have to make all kinds of decisions. Whereas the women's race, I mean, it was a lot more predictable in my mind, um, especially when we had three of the women that could make it. So there, we were just at a level where it's the the decisions aren't very hard when you're that fit. I mean, you're just going to be going with the lead pack. So um, it was mostly more about uh, just mentally being ready to really crush crush the last 10K and respond to moves and attack over the last 10K. I, I, I really didn't have much doubt that we'd be there at 20. Yeah. Is, is that what you told Alphine and, and Steph as well? Yeah. I mean, I think that my philosophy with Alphine, because I felt like she was probably the fittest of the group, was to really talk about getting to 20 and then whenever you felt like you could make it to the finish, go. Um, whereas with Steph, it was more like, okay, if it really gets moving, just remember, it's it's really hard course. So you may have to you may have to be the one that tries to come from behind to grab the spot, potentially. Um, with Kellen, it was more like the Alephine instructions, although I think I mentioned, you know, hopefully Alephine would be the one to go and then you could just follow Alephine. That was kind of that was kind of the thinking. So I mean, as a marathon coach, is it just about trusting that your athletes will make the right decisions on race day? Like, is that like I guess when you map out strategies, not just for this marathon, but any marathon, how much of it is saying like, "Hey, maybe look to move at this point in the course," or if you're feeling good, go here. And how much of it is just saying like, "Hey, you know, I trust you to make decisions about how you're feeling and know when to go." Well, I think you're trying to give them a general idea of when when those decisions are going to come, and then talking about what the answers are going to be uh, to the questions that are going to be asked. So, um. You know, in this case, I think we felt strongly that we would have no problem getting to 20 or 21. So we didn't have to make them worry about things that might happen early because we would be able to absorb anything that happened early, I felt. So it was pretty, it was pretty focused on just making sure that uh, we relaxed early and saved as much mental and physical energy as possible that, so that we could really uh, make those decisions that would have to be made somewhere between 20 and, and 23. And that, that is kind of how it worked out. I'm not trying to sound like a genius here. I just, that, that is how it worked out. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I kind of thought that's how both of the races would go, right? It's like, this is a trials race. And especially with a favorite on the men's side, like Rupp, who's kind of known for sitting and kicking when he's in fields like this. I'm kind of surprised that race strung out as early as it did, but I guess it was faster pace, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the women's race, like you said, it probably, probably went more to form um, in terms of how the race played out, maybe not in terms of the outcome, but 
in that case, you did think Alphine was going to win. I mean, you were telling a few people beforehand. What gave you the confidence? I mean, she was just like, would you, <clears throat> look, we've been around since 2014, so we have a lot of data on marathons, um, a lot of good data because we've had a lot of good marathons. So we know, like for example, what kind of shape Kellen was in when she ran 224 solo. Um, we know what kind of shape she was in when she ran 226 in New York City. Um, and Alephine was just objectively fitter. Um, then, then Kellen was at that, to be fair, Kellen was fitter too, um, than she was at that time, though, though she had this, um, shin problem, um, that was hampering her. But in terms of the times that they were hitting in practice, they were just far superior to anything we had ever seen. And so I just, we know what that means. And so when I see her closing workouts in five seventeen uh, at the end of a 15 mile steady state or, or three five thirties in a row at the end of 20 miles of running on the day, uh, uphill at, on Lake Mary. I'm just, I'm just saying nobody's going to be able to do that. Uh, she's, she was just at a very high level. Yeah. That 15 miler was, what was like the average pace for that one? Well, Ben, Ben paced them early. So they kept it under control for a while. I, I don't know what she averaged, pro- probably around 35, 34, maybe low five thirties for, for, um, 15. And is that the one afterwards where you're thinking she's going to win this? Like when did that form, when did that thought begin to formulate in your mind? I, I would, I mean, there were several times when I thought it was possible. I, four weeks out, we did a workout where we did 10 miles at 620 and then 10 miles at 540. But that one is the one that she closed. And we, we ran it the absolute hardest way we could. We ran on Lake Mary, we ran, um, zero to five, which is sort of a hilly section, but it's net down. Then we turned around and went five back to zero. So hilly section, but net up turned and then went zero to five and then five to zero. So, so, uh, the hard 10 at 540, you know, on the way out, Ben was pacing them and they were running five forties. And then he kind of let them off the leash, the last five, as they went up those hills. And, um, and again, she, she was closed. She closed her last three in 530 pace up those hills. That's just totally insane. I mean, th- those are splits that we would have been happy with going the other way. Um, and I just, you know, I just, that's, that's totally crazy stuff. And she was pulling away from Kellen and Steph who were very fit. Yeah. We kind of, we kind of kept all that under wraps. I think we did a good job. Yeah. Well, no, I know. Cause you post the workouts, you know, um, on final surge, but I think sometimes even talking to you, I, I don't always get the sense of exact splits for everything and exactly how everything goes. So it's interesting now to hear sort of how, how much they're crushing. And that's why I talked to Steph after the race. She's like, yeah, she was destroying us in a couple of these workouts. You well, know? The, the thing about Elephine too, is she, she's requested that we not really, um, I mean, she's all about sharing, but she doesn't really want the extra pressure of us putting out her exact stuff. So, and I'm totally cool with that. I mean, she shares all kinds of cool things and she's, totally personable and does a great job of being a brand ambassador. She just, she just gets a little bit, um, uh, you know, she just, she doesn't like that extra pressure. Um, so, so we were, we were pretty chill about it. Mm-hmm. How did her joining the team come about? Yeah. So at the end of 17, her contract with new balance was up. And so Howie Kofleski, who's her manager reached out to me on her behalf uh, she had mentioned our group to him because she had run with Steph and Kellen in New York, but they had beaten her in the fall of 17. And 
she thought that was interesting. Um, and she wanted to become a, a good marathoner. She had had all this success between, you know, 10 K and half marathon, 25 K on the roads, but hadn't really figured out the marathon in three tries. And so we had her out for a visit in early January and we really hit it off. I showed her training. She ran with the ladies. They hit it off. She's so personable and outgoing. And the fact that we had this big group and she was going to have these teammates and people she already knew and liked, and they liked her, of course. And so it happened pretty quick. I guess within within a week or two, we worked out some details and signed a contract and she was on our team by mid-January. And then she ran Houston um, she got her stuff together and she moved to Flagstaff at the end of that month. So January, 2018. What do you think is the biggest difference or change that has allowed her to become this great marathoner from what she might've been doing a few years ago? It's certainly not a knock on her old program, but I just think that knowing what I know about what she was doing, I think one part of it is we do do such marathon specific work. So I think that's probably a part of it. Also, we really keep the we keep the leash on you a lot. You know, we don't let you just go crazy and, and run fast all the time. And and I think, you know, maybe there was some of that going on. And then also we're very calculated about what races we choose to do so that we'll be ready on the big days, those being the marathon days. And, um, you know, she loves to race and she raced a lot back in her previous career. Uh, the previous part of her career. And so I think sometimes it was just a matter of she was tired by race day. Um, and we, you know, we just, we just sort of made some tweaks to those few things and she's always been made for it. I think physically just needed to make a few uh, changes. Yeah. Now looking at the race that, you know, there was kind of a full start, uh, on the women's race and I was, I rewatched it. and I just thought it was really interesting. Like some of the women sort of panic or they're not sure what to do alphine is just standing there totally stone-faced like it does unfazed i'm wondering like did that strike you at all or am i just like making too much of like one moment there well i thought the cool thing at the start that i noticed was that the three of them not only started together which you figured they would but they took the middle spots right on the front of the line you know they were just totally confident um they didn't try to hide behind anyone they didn't go off to the side they just took the middle and uh, I thought that was super cool. I didn't notice her face during that false start like you're talking about. I just noticed the three of them, and they were just very confident, it seemed to me. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, re-watching the broadcast, I'm just... Honestly, there, I don't think there was really that much to talk about for the first 19 miles of the race. I mean, am I wrong? Did anything happen there that you think was important, or is it, you know, I guess, yeah, was there anything important to talk about from that first part of the race? Well, we didn't want to be part of the story the first 19, that's for sure. Like I said, our, our strategy was to just stay tucked in until it was time for us to do something, you know, and if it wasn't time to do anything, then we didn't want to do anything. So the fact that we weren't a part of the story for those first 19 was exactly what I wanted. Uh, in terms of the broadcast, I, yeah, I, I didn't love the broadcast, but I don't, I don't know what you want me to talk about. No, no, I was just curious, like in terms of, Anything that happened in the race, like any moves or anything like that, if there was anything worth talking about? Well, I, I think that they were running a solid pace for the course. Laura did a lot of the leading, which was cool. She's she's a really great story. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think that 
there wasn't a whole lot to talk about except for the fact I, I, I think the story was that everybody was there. That was the story. I mean, how cool is that to have obviously our three ladies, but then Sarah Hall and Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson and Laura Thweet and Sally Kipiego, you know, they're all there. I mean, it was start, the tension was really building. Um, I don't know if they really portrayed that on the broadcast, but I, I, to me, it was, it was a quintessential marathon. It's so, it's so made for TV because the tension is just building and building. You're just waiting for something to, to crack and happen. And, and then it did obviously, which was, uh, you know, awesome. Yeah, I think the only really only development before that point was Jordan Nassay dropping back. When you see something like that, she's obviously one of the serious contenders to make the team. Are you thinking, all right, yes, that's one person down, or are you just like fo- too focused on your own athletes to really worry about it? Well, I remember seeing that and thinking, you know, to me, it's not a personal thing. I'm not. I'm not talking about the athletes personally. I'm just saying I like when our math improves. That's how I. T- that's how Ben and I talk about it. So I, I think the phrase I used was our math just got better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the women's break, I mean, when do you realize they're separating? Because I, the broadcast, that was right when the men's finish was going on. And so they don't they don't show the women's race for a long time, and then they cut to it, and it's Molly and Alephine up front. Yeah, I was just constantly watching the splits come through. The, again, the app was gold. So I knew that um, – I don't have the splits pulled up in front of me, but right around 20 or 21, whatever it was, that people were starting to crack – and, um, so yeah, I mean, I knew it right away and I knew that it was Alephine and Molly out in front and Sally just for a, a bit there before they pulled away from Sally. Um, I knew that Steph had just started to crack. It seemed like Steph and Molly Huddle and Emily cracked, but, the, but Molly and Emily a little bit worse. And then it seemed like Kellen and Laura and Des were together for a second and they formed kind of a second pack before Kellen fell off of that. Um, so it just broke up really fast, I guess, which isn't surprising because it's like you're in this rhythm, you're in this rhythm, you're in this rhythm. And then all of a sudden, I mean, they ran a really fast mile up a hill. I think it was 530 straight up a hill and that's going to hurt. And it hurts mentally too, because one minute you're in it and the next minute you're not. And it's really debilitating. At about 22 miles, if you, you know, go back and watch the race, Alphine looks just super strong i mean she just looks out so comfortable and seidel kind of looks like she's hiding next to her do you assume like all right she's probably on the team at this point when do you start thinking that way yeah so right around there so we had sort of strategically prepared for this during the race so ben and i were talking about what we would do and we kind of had decided that okay once the guys pass at 17 we need to go on the back part of the course where we can actually be heard and so I, I got myself uh, – for the guys' race, I was about 22 because I knew they weren't having the greatest of days. And so I wanted to get them as early as possible so they could you know, try to get some kind of second wind and, and pass as many people as they could. And then I went farther up the course because I knew at this point that things were going well on the women's side. So I thought the later the better. So we went – I went up to about 23 and a half. Ben was at about – I think 21. And then I had my friend Mike uh, in between us. And once we were preparing for Alephine to come by, we felt very confident. So what we wanted her to do was just, just keep pressing, not attacking, but pressing because obviously they were just pulling away from the others. And we felt like, okay, the more she's pressing, the more Molly is going to be hurting. And uh, we just wanted to 
we just wanted to make sure that um, she didn't do anything crazy because we did feel pretty confident that she could win it in the end. We just wanted to make sure that she didn't go so hard that she hurt herself as well. What did you like yell out? Maybe not even just like when at that point, is it just keep pressing? Do you yell anything else out? At 23 and a half, it was just keep pressing. And, and I'm acting like we had a effect on it i mean these she did a great job i mean i don't even know if she hurt us you know she she kind of was making those decisions whether she hurt us or not i think she was doing a beautiful job you like to think you have a (laughs) say in it but i mean it's mostly them so then um i didn't scream or anything until i got i busted my butt and got to the half mile to go uh and she had already broken away at that point so at that point you're just yelling you know let it rip let it rip let it rip what about during the race, like when they passed you at mile 17 or earlier? They couldn't hear you anyway. Yell? They couldn't hear you anyway because it was just too many people. Um, I mean, you're trying to say you look great, but I mean, they're not hearing you. They're just hearing a wall of noise. It was totally wild. When, so when is your thinking shift between she can make the team that she can win? Oh, when I when I knew that she had broken away with Molly, I mean, we, we, we felt like, of course, that, um, you know, yeah. we're going to win this thing, but uh, it's never... It's never a done deal until it's done. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, also you've got the other two. So you're talking about what to tell Alephine, but you're also talking about what to tell Steph and Kellen. And, uh, you know, Steph only missed by 19 seconds. So when we saw her at 23, I mean, you just never know, you know? So if I was yelling aloud at anybody, it was really Steph because at that point it was all, all in for Steph. She had to just dig down as deep as she could, which she did and made up ground on, on Sally, on Laura, on Des, but uh, but you know they they beat her still, but she did a great job. So, do you remember what you yelled at, at Steph? Anything that could come into my my mind, I guess. No, I I think just just keep attacking, just keep attacking, because um, she had to be in all out attack mode. There was there was no holding back at that point for her. And I guess pre race with Alphine, you know, you said after twenty miles, that's sort of when to go. Did was there any instructions for? If it comes down to a two-person race in the final miles, when to make a final assault, or is that sort of up to her? It, the, the 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 instructions were when you go when you when you go go hard, but you have to know that you can make it all the way to the finish. You have to be a hundred percent sure that 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 you can make it all the way to the finish when you go really hard. And so she waited as long as she could. Um, I think she probably could have gone a hair earlier, but I think she was being smart, really smart. Did she ever look bad to you at any point in the race? No, she looked fine. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's really what struck. I guess that happens often with the winners. It's like the winners will be the ones who look the strongest, but uh, sometimes you'll see people hurting. And I, that's one thing that really stood out to me watching is just like, she's sort of powered through that whole course. Yeah. She looked really good. Well, she's really good on ups and downs. She's thrived on that kind of stuff before. I mean, uh, she's a great cross country runner, wonderful cross country runner, and um, and she's had a lot of success at let's say Boulder Boulder 10K, which is nasty hilly course at altitude and usually pretty hot, and um, so those tough conditions usually suit her pretty well. And I thought the last 10K, as hard as it was, was that was a good thing for her. I also noticed she was biting off some <laughs> energy packets like goo or something like yeah. that. Where did she get those from, and what was she? What were they? So she she was taking gels, you know, just regular cliff shots. It's something the girls make fun of, the ladies uh, make fun of her for because she takes like six of them during the race. It's so unnecessary, but she somehow convinced herself that it helps. Uh, you know, she's just a goofball. I mean, like I said, we're not we don't get into the science of it all that much. You know, we just tell them to 
to try a bunch of different things until they find something they like. And she likes the taste of those gels. And, and her theory is, you know, if one is good, six must be better. So she takes a lot of them. But does she like just pick them up from places on the course or is she running with them? She had them on her bottles. Okay. So she, okay. Would, she would pull them. She had them taped to the bottle. Yeah. Because I, I, she was like one of the only people I saw who was actually like biting off the label instead of sort of tearing it. I don't know. <laughs> She's a total goof. Well, like think about the 24. She that is the last one and she's taking a gel. She doesn't need a gel at that point, you know, physiologically, but she she thinks it helps. So she did it. Uh, who, who are we to argue, exactly, right? Exactly. The, the ladies joke that she puts on weight during the race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found it interesting after the race, you told Weldon – the focus was on winning, not not making the team. Why that approach? Well, that was just something I came up with in December when I was studying and preparing for our big team meeting that we had to sort of kick off the Olympic year. And I just ran, watched a bunch of races, um, not only trials marathon races, but 1500s, 5000s, 10,000s. And you just notice that the people who go for the win are the people who make the team typically. Uh, it's very rare that someone comes up with a cute strategy to m- get third from behind. I mean, it's happened, obviously, but more often than not, it's the people who believe they can win and go for the win that end up on the podium. And so I just thought it was the best um, mindset to have. And then the, the course, before the race, you said, I don't think the course being difficult is going to create some goofy scenario where someone comes out of left field. Do you stand by that, given that Molly Seidel kind of came out of left field to make the women's team. I do stand by that because she's very good. <laughs> you know, she's a very, very good runner. And she had, obviously, I don't know all the ins and outs of her last two years. Um, but from a talent perspective, she's multiple time NCAA national champion. She's footlocker national champion. She's got all the talent in the world. She's obviously been on fire lately. Her one Oh nine was very impressive in Houston. Um, so I don't think she's out of left field in terms of uh, from a talent perspective, you know. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much stand by that. I, I think the I, I always thought – I think I said the fittest people would make the team given that they were prepared for the course. And so, again, I don't know what happened to some of the other people. It's a trials year, so it's really hard. It's hard to find that fine line and some people go over the line and they're a little bit cooked and – you know, I, I don't know. I can't speak to everybody else, but uh, but obviously Molly was one of those really good people that, um, you know, for whatever reason, she and her coach pushed the right buttons and she was ready on the day. Yeah, because I'm curious, like Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson, I think those were two women that a lot of people thought would run better and they didn't. They both ended up dropping out and, you know, they only they dropped out because they want to come back for the 10K trials. But they're two women who sort of strike me as rhythm runners and I don't think this was a rhythm runner's course at all. I'm curious, like, if you're a rhythm runner, can you train to become a runner who's, like, good at, you know, handles courses like this better? Or is that just something you either have or you don't have? I mean, I think you could train for it, sure. I, I think Steph was more of a rhythm runner back in the day. But, you know, we do a lot of hills and a lot of pace change. And we we don't get on the track that much. So our terrain is very varied. And she's become very good at running up and down and running cross country. And, um, yeah, I, I think you can get better at it for sure. Mm-hmm. I want to go back. I mean, this, this race on Saturday, that was sort of the culmination for something you guys have been building since 
you started the group in January 2014. And how did you go about building this team? How did you build it up from something that, you know, essentially to now the point you've got the Olympic trials champion in the marathon and you got, you know, three of the top 10 on the women's side? Well, I think I'm fortunate in the sense that I really, really enjoy business. You know, I, I had a business <laughs> in St. Louis. I had a very successful running retail store and our business model in St. Louis was to create a community around our store, to create stars out of our retail racing team members so that they could be um, kind of um, pillars of the community. We wanted to do a lot of face-to-face interaction with our customers. We wanted to have really fun events and just do things that nobody else was doing uh, in addition to doing things that people were doing but doing them better. And so in a lot of ways, all I wanted to do with the team was take that same philosophy to this uh, side of the industry and create a community around the team and create a fan base. And much like I wanted great employees at the store who were great human beings, I wanted really good people uh, on our team, regardless of their talent. I mean, that's a given. You want them to be talented, but you wanted them to fit into the culture and you wanted to them to support one another and have a culture that um, was very we-oriented and team-oriented and uh, you know, it was really just um, looking at things that people were doing well and trying to do them better, and then looking at looking for places that I thought teams could improve. And um, you know, it, it's not like we've always gotten it right, but over the years we've continued to tweak our roster to the point where now we have a dozen people and they all fit that mold. You know, they're all really bought in and they're all great people and great teammates and they thrive off of the camaraderie of training together and they believe in the the business side of things and the branding and what we need to do to be brand ambassadors and um you know i I think that's the biggest thing is that we're we're really passionate about more than just running fast um and i think in a weird way that's helped us helped us to run fast because we've um we feel all that support from that community. And you saw it this weekend with the shakeout run and the pep rally we did the night before the race and um, everything all happening on social media. We, we just um, – our, our, our team is so, so much more than just us. We, we, uh, we feel all that support from our partners but our fans as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really impressed me the most is when you guys started – I mean I would, I would look at sort of all the training groups in the U.S. and – maybe four years ago, maybe not four years, maybe look, maybe six years ago when you started, I was like, well, it's Hoka, it's this outsider company, I don't really know much about them, and are they ever going to be able to get the talent to do something? And, you know, year over year, you've built it to the point where you are getting the talent and you guys are improving. Was there a turning point, you think, for the development of the program where you thought sort of we've made it and we've arrived? It's been a pretty pretty gradual progression, I suppose, Um you know, the 2016 trials were a big year for us because we did well at the marathon and on the track. So to get two sixths uh, in the marathon and then two fourth place finishes on the track was big. Uh, that was also a big year for us because sort of a new regime had come in at Hoka. Um, a lot of a lot of people had left and a lot of new folks had come in and we kind of had to reintroduce ourselves to those people who were now the decision makers. And... <clears throat> That year going well was very helpful, and then to sign the the second contract with them was really helpful because it um, 
it sort of allowed us to just do our thing and not worry about uh, not worry too much about the financial side because we had a four year deal and um, it, it allows you to just uh, I don't know it's uh, takes the pressure away not that I don't feel pressure always internally I just put it on myself but uh, I don't know I'm, I'm kind of rambling but I, I guess it's 2016 was one big moment and then. I guess recently some of the success in the big marathons, you know, Scott Falbel's 209 was a huge deal. Um, that was really big. And then obviously Saturday was kind of the culmination, as you say. Maybe the Hoka people are the best people to ask about this, but you might have some insight. Like why do they even start investing in the sport in 2014? Like I'd never heard of this company when they start do- putting this money in. And we're sort of in an era where Nike is still supporting a lot of athletes and some of the big companies are, but then there's also... You know, there was a while there in the 2010s where some of the other companies seemed like they were pulling out a little bit and Hoka just decided to come in and start sponsoring these groups. Like, why, why do you think they did that? I think they needed the credibility. You know, this is just my personal opinion from the business side. But I think they had such a hold on the trail market and they were doing so well with trail runners. But if they wanted to become a billion-dollar company, that wasn't going to cut it. You know, they were going to need to... Uh, have a much broader appeal and so you know they started with leo actually leo manzano because i think they 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 tried to go all the way to the other side and say okay you think all we are is slow trail runners um check this out we're on the feet of this guy who's run 350 in the mile and he's an olympic silver medalist so i think that was pretty brilliant really and then signing our group as i understand it the the idea was hey you know where the masses are, they're in the marathon and they're on the roads. So if we can create credibility by signing this team that's running really well on the roads, then we can connect to those people who buy road shoes, which is ultimately the the biggest group of people uh, in terms of consumers. So it was all, it was all business based, you know, it was all, it was all, how do we reach people and how do we convince people that our shoes are good? And, you know, we were just in the right place at the right time. And, we had the right pitch, and obviously it's worked out for both sides. So for the people who didn't make the team in your group, where do they go from here? Which ones are coming back and trying the track trials? Which ones are just going to sit out? What's the path forward? Well, certainly Sid Vaughn, I think, who's young, will, will run the, the track. Um, I think he can run 28 flat, 28 10, something around – something around there. He was incredibly fit. I, I didn't mention at the top, but you know, you don't like to make excuses, but he had a nasty moment in the race where he had to jump over one of those falls that occurred and he landed really funny and it hurt his back and it hurt his hamstring and he started kind of compensating and then he got a side stitch and then he threw up and that's when he dropped out. So anyway, it was really a bummer of a day for Sid, but, uh, but he'll, he'll run the track and then Stefan Kellen absolutely will run the track. I mean, we feel very confident in their abilities to perform at 10,000 meters. Um, and then Scott Smith and Scott Fauble will probably just, uh, wait and, you know, recover and, and then get ready for a fall marathon. I don't think, you know, they're, they've reached a very high level and they're not really interested in going to the trials, you know, um, they're interested in doing really big things and, I think they would rather just gear up and be totally ready for a fall marathon. How is how has Fobbs taken the last couple of days? Because I know he was just one, he was one of those guys that you thought like this this could be his year to make the team, and it's going to be four could be four years until he gets another shot. 
I think he's had a really mature outlook on it. I mean, he, he even after the race, a couple hours after when we spoke for the first time, he said, look, I, I, I'm not going to feel bad about this race. I, I think I ran a good race. You know, I was running great splits. I was on 211 play, pace through 23 miles. I still ran 212. I never gave up. Uh, if you'd have told me, you know, just like I've said, 212 on that course, I thought, I thought it was a great run. You know, he, he feels like physiologically it was as good of a run as he had at Boston. So he's got a good head about it in that sense. And I think he realizes that, you know, he, he's got to continue to work on his biomechanics and being as efficient as he possibly can so that he can come back and continue to progress. I mean, the guy's an incredible marathoner. He's run 212 in his debut on a flat, fast course, then 212 at New York on a tough course, then 209 at Boston, and then 212 on this tough course. So he's really, really good at the marathon. He's never run a bad one, and we just want to keep getting better. And what about Alphine for Sapporo? I know it's still a few months away, but like, what's the thinking? What do you guys have goals? What are you thinking about that race? Well, if you watched her on Saturday, as as you mentioned, she was full of run. She had an incredible day, a world class day. Uh, probably had even more in her, honestly. And uh, we just want to get really, really fit, specifically for that race. Uh, get ready for the conditions and the course and. You know, I would, I would, you know, like I said, I don't like to put uh, her goals out there because she feels that pressure. But I would say her goals are certainly big. What did you think of the course? Did you think it was too hard? Because the, we look, we're running for a race that, that in Sapporo is going to be pretty flat. And even the original Tokyo course had maybe a hill at the end, but it wasn't super hilly course. Like, do you think it was too hard for a trials race or are you okay with the difficulty i was okay with it i enjoyed it i mean the, to me that's the puzzle right is to get is to get ready for the 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 distance the course and the conditions and that's super fun uh, it's it's not as fun for me to just go out on time trial so i'm very biased in that sense because that's always what i've enjoyed more is the the true racing and i'm i'm an i'm a monstrous golf fan and I equate it to golf in the sense that, and, and actually now with the shoes, you can really equate it to golf, right? The golf equipment is so good. So making a course longer isn't really a limiting factor for these guys. It's no problem for them. What's interesting is when the course is really difficult, like the Masters, like Augusta. Uh, that's really interesting and that's really fun to watch. And it's neat to watch these people uh, manipulate this course and try to figure it out. That's so much cooler to me than seeing them just bomb and drive hit a uh, just nice little fairway uh, shot into the green putt and they're done and they birdie every hole that's not very interesting same thing for me with the shoes now everything's so good it's not interesting to me to watch dubai where 11 dudes are there with 200 meters to go because there was no limiting factor there was nothing to separate these guys it's much more fun to me to watch a race like saturday with all this intrigue and the ups and the downs and the so many opportunities to make different kinds of moves um i mean i'll take that every time and hopefully that's the future hopefully the future is less about time trials and, and times and more about hey how do we challenge these folks how do we how do we how do we create something that's truly interesting one of the things you said after the race was you thought this was the best trials ever why did you think that well i mean gosh if you were there i mean it was just look i mean it was just incredible the the, the crowds were incredible i think it was the best trials ever because of how many people were there and where the just tangibly being able to see how far the sport has come since 2004 when we ran in Birmingham and in St. Louis. No offense to those cities. I'm from one of those cities. But the crowds were just 
it's just not even comparable. Uh, this was a true sporting event. This was there was more people at, at this race than there were um, at um, you know I, I don't know what you would say like a NASCAR event you know where where there's a hundred thousand people in the stands. There was way more people than that. I mean this thing was. Just incredibly packed, and people were people came also to watch the race. You know, I think that's been a problem with our sport before too. They think you have to have it the day before a marathon because you got to give the people something to do themselves. It's like no, they want to just watch the race. They're just a fan of the race, and uh, to see to see to see such passionate fans out on the course, and so many of them. That's why I think it was the best trials ever. Yeah, well, I, I definitely was surprised with the number of people who flew down just to watch. Because normally, like, I don't remember hearing that many stories of people flying out to L.A. And L.A. is a great place to visit in February. But, you know, in a marathon as well, you're only seeing them on the course. You see them a few times, but you're not seeing the whole race. So I think that definitely struck me. And you look at the, the video footage, it's like five deep in some spots. The finish was insane. People were climbing fire, up yeah. poles and climbing up. I mean, they couldn't – like, you couldn't see. You know, it was uh, – it was it was so good. The energy was amazing, totally amazing. All right, Ben. Well, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to sort of sort through what has to be, you know, one of the biggest highlights of your professional career, I would say, is coaching the Olympic trials champion. Uh, anything else? Any other parting thoughts? Anything else you wanted to say on the Let's Run podcast? No, this was great. I appreciate it. Uh, the coverage was really awesome. You, you do a great job, and uh, we're, we're appreciative. Thank you. All right. Well, congrats again, Ben. And uh, yeah, I'll let you go. Okay. See you.